And it's really good to be here. First, a uh, quick disclaimer, uh, the views in this talk are mine alone and not necessarily those of the Global Catastrophic Risk Institute. Now, the work that I'll be presenting today comes from a broader theme in my research, especially these, uh, these three papers, which is that uh, essentially for us to make a, a productive change on the issues that we care about, we need to really uh, understand the, the perspectives and opportunities from those people who are really positioned to uh, uh, take important actions on these. We can't just think about what sorts of actions we would ideally like to see on these issues. We need to see uh, what people could actually do uh, in, in their positions. And in order to do this, we need to uh, understand their perspectives, how they think. They don't necessarily think like we do. They don't have the same beliefs, the same values necessarily. And even if they did, based on you know, where they work, the, the institutional context, they might not be able to take certain types of actions. And uh, we really uh, would do well to kind of internalize that and adjust our own strategies accordingly. A good place to start is in understanding how you know, they think and talk about these sorts of ideas. So in international security, uh, for example, specifically in intelligence analysis, they have a concept called mirror imaging or mirroring. Now, uh, mirroring is the mistake that analysts often make when they assume that the people who they are analyzing uh, uh, think and act like they do. It's essentially like, if I was in that position, this is what I would do. Well, you're not in that position. It's, it's someone else. And in intelligence analysis, it's typically somebody from a different country, uh, with a different cultural and political background, different uh, uh, institutional context that they work in, and it's a mistake to think that they would do what you would do in that circumstance. Uh, that works well for, for them, and, and it's also an important message for us. A pretty classic example of this in global catastrophic risk from the early 1980s in the early studies of nuclear winter, this is Carl Sagan and colleagues, uh, they were really concerned about nuclear winter for uh, essentially the same reasons that we might be concerned about global catastrophic risk and existential risk and things like that, uh, which is because a nuclear winter would be a very severe event, uh, potentially including loss of future generations. And they were concerned about this and concluded, therefore, we should uh, reduce the size of nuclear arsenals down to a level that would be too small to cause nuclear winter. They tried promoting this idea in international security policy circles and met with this response, which was that no, actually, uh, to the extent that nuclear winter is a concern, it is a concern that only reinforces our existing nuclear weapons policy, doesn't suggest any changes. Uh, because the policy, in particular nuclear deterrence, the idea here is basically uh, nuclear war would be so catastrophic that the only sensible policy is to avoid war in the first place. Well, nuclear winter just makes nuclear war even more catastrophic than it already was, reinforcing the deterrence policy. And this is really where the, the debate over nuclear winter ended. It was a stalemate. didn't really get much farther. It didn't change the, the actual nuclear weapons policy that we had. It was because they didn't really uh, uh, reconcile with this reaction from the, the nuclear weapons policy community. More recent example, a uh, high-profile video on lethal autonomous weapons, or the term slaughter bots, uh, was, was put out recently. And you can agree or disagree with what the video itself was actually saying. I personally am somewhat skeptical, but it's still the case that the video itself was fairly poorly received by a lot of important people in 
the uh, international security policy communities. And because of that, it has made it more difficult for the people behind the video to get their message out there to these very important audiences. And then finally, an example with my own work. I am not above making this mistake myself. Uh, a few years back, I published uh, some research on a concept I called winter safe deterrence. Now, this was actually an attempt to reconcile concerns about the risk of nuclear winter with the uh, uh, belief in nuclear deterrence as a policy construct. And that I said, okay, if we are going to reduce our nuclear arsenals down to a level that would not cause nuclear winter, are there other things we can do using other types of weapons to achieve a successful deterrence policy so that we can have kind of the best of both worlds? And for this, I looked at a number of different types of weapons, including biological weapons. And it was the attention to biological weapons in this research that prompted these responses that you see here. And this is actually just a small portion of the uh, very negative reaction that this part of the work generated. And I was not intending to do this. I was not trying to be contrarian or anything like that. This was a mistake. I, I really did not uh, appreciate how strongly the, uh, the international security community would come out against even the, the suggestion of a positive role for biological weapons. I mean, how I thought about it, myself um, in ethical terms, thinking in uh, basically as a consequentialist, I would look at weapons, not for every type of weapon, for, but for a lot of different type of weapons, uh, kind of like that, where uh, for small amounts of the weapon that are you know, carefully used in very select circumstances, there could be some benefits to this society, and then you get more problems as, it, as uh, the arsenal size increases. Well, what I failed to realize is that a lot of people think about it more like that, where there is a very large benefit to not having any of the weapon in the first place. Uh, might even be larger than what's shown here, in that um, they they just think that the weapon itself, as a as a class of weapon, should not be there. This is why we see bans of a number of different types of weapons: biological weapons, chemical weapons, landmines, and and several others, and. Okay, some of that I, I disagree with. Uh, part of the argument that is made for banning weapons is, in ethics terms, deontological. They will argue that certain types of weapons are fundamentally immoral. Personally, I disagree with that. Like, if I'm going to be killed in the battlefield, I don't actually care what type of weapon it is that kills me. I'm dead anyway. And likewise, if I'm going to be hurt... I don't care which type of weapon it is. I care about the pain that I have to, to suffer. And uh, But at the same time, there are a lot of people who think this way, and that's something that I need to uh, internalize and factor in. Uh, but there's more to it than that. Banning a class of weapons is just a simpler approach to policy. I mean, ban biological weapons. That's three words. You could put it on a bumper sticker. Versus, like, craft a carefully optimized small quantity of biological weapons to be used in specific circumstances. That's a lot more complicated. It's harder to rally political support behind it. And in consequentialist terms, that matters. And so this is something that I have been, uh, uh, since this, trying to uh, grapple with and, and internalize and, and factor into my own approach to weapons policy. Now, there are still some parts of it where I really do think the international security uh, community gets it wrong. In particular, 
uh, in the last few years with the really massive international attention paid to a fairly small handful of chemical weapons attacks in Syria in comparison to the much larger number of attacks using uh, guns and conventional explosives, these types of weapons that just aren't quite as, as salient for, for whatever reason. And this just seems wrong to me, where we make such a big deal out of the people who are hurt and killed by chemical weapons, but for this much larger number of people who just had the misfortune of being hurt and killed by the wrong weapons, we don't actually care about that so much. And there are some people who do care about it, like this uh, organization Action on Armed Violence. Uh, they are focused specifically on this issue. Uh, and superficially, it seems like they're doing good work. I haven't looked into them uh, closely, so I can't make an endorsement of them. But it, it looks like they do pretty good work on this. Um, and, and for good reason. I mean, I'm actually myself kind of thinking of getting involved in this to really help drive home the point that uh, there are all these uh, uh, lives that are being harmed and killed on something that we're essentially neglecting. I think this is a good way to put in more uh, uh, quantitative reasoning into international security conversations, and that could be important for uh, just just overall. I mean, essentially, it kind of looks like this. You have your high-frequency, low-severity types of weapons like conventional explosives. Then on the opposite end, you have your low-frequency high-severity weapons, uh, like nuclear weapons, which is where most of my work is. And then you have chemical weapons, which are in this kind of sad bottom left corner where we don't use them that often when we do, the magnitude's not that large. Okay, sure, you can cause a lot of harm with chemical weapons, but aside from like World War I trench warfare 100 years ago, for the most part, that hasn't really been the case. now, with respect to nuclear weapons, we should be careful uh, in talking about like the international security uh, community perspective, because there's not just one perspective. There are a lot of different perspectives, and we should recognize that. This, uh, this chart here summarizes kind of what I feel like are, are sort of the main perspectives on this, where starting from the top, you have a small minority of people who actually argue for more nuclear proliferation. These are people who really believe in nuclear deterrence, and there is a certain logic to this. If nuclear deterrence brings peace, peace is good, so we should spread nuclear weapons around to more countries so that they can have peace. I might not believe in the effectiveness of nuclear deterrence quite as much as they do, but there, there is at least a logic to it. That is a small minority, though. A more common view among the, the hawkish uh, uh, folks are to essentially maintain the status quo. We will keep our weapons because we see benefits from them, but we don't want other countries to have them, especially the other countries that we don't trust so much. Another prominent view is to have gradual disarmament on timescales of like decades or so as the international conditions permit. This is like Obama, people with similar views as him. The NGO Global Zero is big in this space. And then finally, another very prominent view is for much more rapid Nuclear Disarmament ICANN is the International Coalition for the Abolition of Nuclear Weapons. They just won the Nobel Peace Prize for this. And many NNWS, uh, non-nuclear weapon states, the countries that don't have the nuclear weapons, quite a lot of them also support this view on nuclear disarmament. Now, I've been studying the risk of nuclear war for many years now, and I've got to be honest, I'm actually not sure which of these camps I support. It's tricky because, okay, 
nuclear weapons obviously make war more severe. That much is pretty clear. But with nuclear deterrence, they have some potential to uh, reduce the frequency of major war, such that if you switched over to conventional deterrence, it's possible that you would have war that, uh, major wars that occur more frequently. Uh, and so you have this trade-off between the frequency and severity of war. And it's actually not really obvious to me how that trade-off is resolved. And so because of that, I have tended to shy away from advocating specific policy positions on nuclear disarmament. It's just not quite clear which policy position we should be pushing for. Instead, at least a few years ago, what I would do is push for a different type of policy, which is to improve relations between the different countries, especially the nuclear weapons countries that don't get along with each other, starting with the United States and Russia, which have the two major nuclear arsenals. And this is something that would clearly reduce the risk of all types of war. And it's something that people across all the different disarmament camps would agree with. Everybody agrees if countries get along with each other better, they're less likely to have wars, and, and that, that makes the world safer. Um, and there are things that could be done on this. Uh, something that I like to point to is a really great project by Dorothy and Martin Hellman. Martin Hellman, professor at Stanford, did early work on cryptography and then uh, some work on the risk of nuclear war that my own group's risk analysis is built off of. This is a really amazing project. The two of them analyzed their own marriage and the what they did to overcome their marital struggles and used that as a starting point for thinking about how to improve relationships between different countries around the world. Really brilliant concept. And this is the sort of thing that I would point to as having, uh, you know, good potential to make, make progress on, on this front. However, within the last year or two, things have changed. We now have, as I'm sure you all are well aware, a fairly different political environment, such that if you are to talk about trying to improve the relationship between the United States and Russia, right now, it's, um, it's more complicated. I think that's, that's a fair way of putting it. And in this political environment, I actually don't have great ideas uh, as far as what the, the best way forward because so much of the, uh, uh, the issues now are within the space of domestic politics, especially within the U.S. That's really kind of emerged as a big thing. It used to be that there was a lot of uh, consensus within the U.S., about, say, how to approach the relationships with Russia. Now it's just gotten a lot more complicated. And you know, the important actors for domestic politics are not technical policy analysts like myself. It's more like journalists or uh, you know, grassroots political organizers, campaign managers, of course, the politicians themselves. And so I have not felt like I've had really good opportunities to make a positive difference on this front instead. My own strategy has actually mostly been to kind of lay low, do some research and some kind of quiet uh, networking with policy communities and, and uh, you know, sharing ideas with them, which doesn't get to the root issues going on, but is still something I feel like we can, we can make constructive progress on. What is clear, though, is that for those of us working on international security issues, we need to understand this and internalize this and factor it into our plans and our strategies because this really matters. And 
who knows how this story is going to play out. It's, it's too soon to tell. And that goes for nuclear weapons and a lot of other issues, which as of recently includes artificial intelligence. This is just a small portion of the attention that major national governments have paid to AI as a security issue within the last year or two. And I would expect that there will be more and more of this as time goes on. Now, most of this is for narrow, near-term AI, uh, not the more you know, dramatic, transformative AI that we could have in the future. However, when you look at that, uh, so shown here, this is a map from a survey of artificial general intelligence projects that I published last year. And what you see is they're all over the world. Maybe half of them are based in the United States, but uh, there's a lot in Europe, a lot in China, a few in Russia, and other countries around the world. Now, most of these are private. They're either at private companies or in academia, um, but some of them have government ties and uh, the governments that the countries th that these projects are based in uh, may be paying attention to them anyway. I think we will expect to see more and more of that as this field progresses. And so for this as well, it's important for us to understand these international security dynamics and also the perspectives of the people who are making the actions on that so that we can uh, customize our own efforts on these issues accordingly. I'll stop there. Thank you. All right, awesome. So we do have some time for Q&A. Uh, feel free to submit questions via the app or the website, sf.eaglobal.org slash polls. Um, what does it take to create a nuclear winter? Like, what is that threshold? And there's thousands and thousands of these missiles. How that's, many have to go off? Yeah, that's, that's a good question, because if you have just one nuclear weapon, it's probably not going to cause anything close to a nuclear winter. We had two used in World War II. That didn't really change things that much. Um, what I did in my survey was to take a cautious approach, which is to say that uh, while we don't know exactly what it would take, let's err on the safe side, aim low for it. And so the number that I proposed in the study was 50. This was based on uh, other research that had studied nuclear war scenarios involving 100 nuclear weapons, and they found substantial effects. And so I thought, okay, uh, let's, let's take a, a number that's lower than that. But I have to say that this 50 number was somewhat arbitrary. It's not something that we really have a precise understanding of. So that would be enough, though, to certainly destroy any... I mean, I guess you'd have to still factor in how many of them will actually hit, you know, targets and go through mm -hmm. defenses and whatnot. But I mean, there's no uh, no rival that can survive 50 nuclear strikes. So, what is the argument that that's not enough? I mean, I I don't have a great intuition for that. Sure. And as far as what the the number of nuclear weapons that a country needs to have success successful deterrence. Uh, Opinions vary quite widely. I mean, I've seen anything from as few as like five to as many as like 1,500. And the high numbers come from this idea that we may need uh, weapons for a variety of contexts, different, um, different adversaries that we may need to simultaneously deter, uh, as well as uh, defenses and so on that these, uh, the adversaries may have. 
And so in order to have a reliable deterrent, we might need that many, num th that many nuclear weapons. I'm skeptical that we would need so many, but the important thing to understand is that ultimately deterrence is psychological. Right? Deterrence succeeds when the other side makes a decision to not attack. And so ultimately it's not about the number of weapons, it's about uh, the, the human reaction to that. And we have, the United States has 7,000 or something? Uh, it's in the thousands, depends on how you count it. Um, and there is some interest in reducing the size of our arsenal. Um, certainly in the Obama administration, there was, there was interest in that. Uh, my sense is that the main factor for uh, progress on nuclear disarmament right now is the relationship between the United States and Russia. I think we are unlikely to unilaterally make significant cuts to our arsenal, that we would only do that in, in tandem with uh, cuts from Russia. So what do you think the trajectory is that we're on right now? I mean, it seems like, obviously, we have a summit coming up in two days. Uh, it seems like things are not going that great, but how do you assess it? It's, it's not clear that where we are right now can be readily described as a trajectory. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, I, I think that's, that's what I would random, say. I mean, it's just, yeah, walk. It, it's... It's, it's a, a volatile situation. Uh, I, live in, I live in New York. That's one of the target cities. San Francisco is another target city. Sometimes I have my fingers crossed. Um, but that's, uh, yeah, well, I guess we'll see. Have there been any historic, I mean, there, I know there have been kind of major sort of uh, high-level arms reduction agreements in the past. Has there been any breakthrough with the situation even remotely like the North Korea situation, I'm kind of struggling to come up with one. Um, people would maybe say Libya, but now that's like the Lib that's like the <laughs> warning to to anybody else. Well, the Libya example is a good one because a, a key attribute of the situation with North Korea is they are a much smaller country than we are, so it's a, a very uneven dynamic in contrast with Russia, which uh, Russia and China, uh, the U.S. considers near peer adversaries. Uh, they might consider themselves pure adversaries, uh, but that's that's the the term that gets used. And so North Korea, I think, from North Korea's perspective, it makes sense that they would recall the Libya example. Um, the United States has not been trustworthy on these matters in the past, and I would expect North Korea to understand that and to factor that into its plans. Uh, I would be surprised if North Korea were to agree to give up its nuclear weapons. I would be very surprised, to be honest. There is progress that can nonetheless be made in a, a talk like this, uh, but that gets into more subtle technical details of, um, uh, uh, of the, the nuclear weapons enterprise. And we'll, we'll see. We'll see. Um, okay. Uh, a number of questions have come in through the app, so thank you, everybody in the audience. Um, you spoke a, for a minute about kind of branding mistakes <laughs> that you and others have, have made as you engage with this content. So one person is kind of asking if you could offer any tips about how to, or advice, I guess, about how to kind of engage without projecting, you know, Snowden-style risk if somebody really wants to get involved. That's a good question. 
And the, really, the, the answer is pretty simple. It's just to understand their perspectives. Uh, so, for example, in my own paper that I did on this, I probably could have done a better job of uh, sharing early drafts with uh, you know, people from this. I mean, there were international security people who saw the drafts. The paper went through peer review in an international security journal, and the readers actually did not flag the thing that ended up getting all the attention. So you never know. Um, but that's the sort of thing that I could have done more of and that I think applies just more generally. The more that we are kind of of that world and of that community, then the better we can predict how they would react to things and you know, get people's reactions uh, to you know, test ideas out before uh, putting them out more widely. Okay. Um, we'll go through a few here rapid fire where it okay. is officially time for break, but we've got a, a chance to just run a couple minutes long. So uh, here's a, a handful in quick succession. How much of what goes on in this space of kind of managing these international catastrophic risks happens behind the scenes and is sort of invisible to the public versus kind of gets discussed in the open? A lot of it is behind the scenes. There's no question about that. Um, it's a mix. It's a mix. The public context is important. National leaders, especially in democracies, do need to uh, care about the domestic reaction to what they're doing. Um, not just in democracies. Um, in China, for example, there's a sense that uh, since Xi was made like a president for life or, or whatever the, the term is, that he actually now has more flexibility to pursue uh, international initiatives because he ha- is in a a uh, more comfortable place domestically. Uh, so it, it goes both ways. There's always a, like a bit of a, a negotiation and two levels internationally and then also nationally. The old public and private position, as uh, somebody once famously put it. Uh, here's an interesting one. Why are there so few women in the audience right now for this talk? Question possibly from a woman in the audience. <laughs> Do you notice that this is sort of a, a gendered topic in some way? To some extent, it varies. So uh, nuclear weapons more so than, say, biological weapons. In the biological weapons space, the um, gender breakdown is, is more balanced. Uh, I, as far as why, I mean, I, I don't think I have any uh, particularly clever or insightful answers. What I can say is that um, there are uh, some people in international security who are aware of this sort of imbalance and try to address it, especially when I think like when there is discrimination against women, which probably happens like that, that definitely should be recognized and encountered because we're just, we lose talent and, and that's a problem. So, um, I'm, I'm glad that there are at least some women in the audience and, and hopefully, you know, more can, can be in this conversation. There is actually some sense that, uh, women bring different perspectives that add something very important to these conversations. Um, like, for example, we talked about the, the marital struggle thing. That sort of contribution is kind of a, a traditionally female thing, though, of course, men can do it, such as Martin Hellman, who was an equal partner on that, that project. Uh, so there, I think there, there is an important uh, role there and something good to pay attention to. Okay, a few more. We'll see how many we can do. Clarification question on this map. Yeah. Um, what do these things 
kind of represent? Are they technical projects trying to crack AGI? Are they kind of ethical yeah. think tank yes. type stuff? That's, that's, a, that's a good question. So these are R&D projects. These are projects that are trying to build AGI. And uh, you see it says lead and partner. Uh, the lead is the country that the project is based in. And the partner is uh, when there are projects that have other collaborators from other countries. Okay. Um, what possible benefit, if you can tell a story about the, the possible virtues of a madman uh, style of managing such situations, do you see any benefit to that? Or So the story is that if the other side thinks you're crazy, then they're more likely to yield. Uh, so the, the, the classic analogy in, in the, the literature on, on deterrence theory is that, like, imagine you and someone who you really don't like are fighting each other while tied to each other by rope and right by the edge of a cliff. Uh, and so what you could do is you could try to just beat up the other person and win, or you could do something that's kind of crazy, like start dancing and shimmying closer to the cliff where they start to think maybe this guy's a little crazy, maybe he actually wants to go over the cliff, or she wants to actually go over the cliff, and maybe that will induce them to yield. That's kind of the basic concept. Does it actually work in practice? Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, maybe it depends on the context, but that's the idea. Okay, last question for now. Um, what do you, what is your kind of outlook for the future, especially as the AGI dynamics kind of begin to develop perhaps along similar, perhaps along different lines to the nuclear dynamics. Do you think we have prospect for a kind of new age of international cooperation, or are we in kind of a, a new dark age, maybe? I mean, there's, there's prospect for it, but there's a lot of work to be done. And this will all play out in the context of the international relations that we're going to be having anyway because of all this other stuff going on. Uh, and so a lot of it depends on what's going on with the rest of the world. Now, with all types of AI, it's important to recognize that it's not just international in the sense of like, inter like between one nation and another because so much of the work is being done privately. And so a lot of it might look less like, say, nuclear weapons and more like, say, climate change, where with climate change, it's mostly the private sector that are the important actors, the fossil fuel companies, the energy industry, all of that. Uh, and so we can learn both from the nuclear weapons experience as far as how to get certain types of cooperation, especially on uh, really high-stakes threats, and then also from climate change and similar types of issues as far as how to handle um, the international cooperation on issues that are driven by the private sector. Well, unfortunately, that is all the time that we have. Thank you to the audience for a bunch of great questions. How about another round of applause for Dr. Seth Baum? Thank you.